We humans are a fickle lot. With one eye, we look to the future and innovation and perhaps prosperity. With the other eye, we are looking backward to see what seems a simpler life. It probably wasn't. But there remains some bit of romance for what was. At least one part of what was is community. This episode is about community in various forms and how we can, and why we should, work to recreate that. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 113. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, is available on Amazon. You can also find a link for it on culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort and see reader-submitted photos of dishes they've made. And there is a link to purchase your own personalized and signed copy. Start your shopping season off on the right food. Surf over to culinarylibertarian.com slash snackmonday for Snack Nation's Cyber Monday sale starting very early. All natural and organic snacks as well as gluten-free options. Snack for the health of it with Snack Nation. Culinarylibertarian.com slash Snack Monday. My guest today is Nicole Williams. Nicole is a former staffer for a conservative member of parliament in Scotland and worked with the Richmond and New Orleans city councils. She is a 2015 and 2017 graduate of the University of Glasgow and a committed Burkean conservative. Nicole has several articles published on the Abbeville Institute page and an impressive family history, which she'll explain. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. You're welcome. Glad to be here. I've invited you on for a conversation about community. Most people probably think they know what that means, and they may be partly right. I want us to pursue some varieties to that idea, which can include big spaces and small. But before we get into that, give us a bit of a detail about your background. Uh, long story short, I am a native of the state of Georgia. I kind of grew up in a working class neighborhood just south of Atlanta. My father is from Western North Carolina. My mother is from Northwest Alabama. And our, we have roots, I guess, that kind of go back into this, this region that all the way back to the 1600s, 1700s. And uh, after that, I am a 2010 graduate of Tulane University. I worked in IT for 15 years, and I'm also a 2015 and 2017 master's level graduate of the University of Glasgow in the UK. Very nice. So do I hear a Southern twang, or is that just my imagination? I, th- I, don't, I of course, don't hear it. And... Uh, I used to have people in the UK always point out to me that they could hear it. 
And they, they seem yeah. to love it. You know, if you walk around the United States with a little bit of a Southern accent, people tend to think you're a little bit thick. But pe- people in the UK treat treated my accent the way that most Americans treat a Scottish or English accent. Ah. Well, I know what that is because I, unless it's a real thick brogue, and I'd like, I'm sorry, I don't understand the thing you said, but otherwise, it's generally it's, it's quite fun to listen to. I'll take that as a compliment because you know, for the longest time, Southerners tend to be kind of self conscious about it. And I, I think it's one of the, it's one of the few things that you have that kind of, you know, when you walk into a room of strangers, that makes people this person's a little bit different. Now, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But why Why be like everybody else? No, there's no good reason for that at all. I want to start with an article you wrote called Rediscovering Heritage, and it is available on the abbevilleinstitute.org page, and I will put a link to that article on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 113. What did you discover about your heritage? And you've already mentioned you have very deep roots. Uh, and how is that relevant, not just for you, but the idea of that discovery for, well, everybody? I think for my, myself, growing up in Georgia, I mean, I, I, I most of my extended family was already dead. But we, we have a bad tendency to start families when we're quite quite a bit older. Like my great grandfather, for example, my mother's side was born in 1854. And I know people who've met their great grand, one of their great grandparents, whereas mine died in 1935. So, um, so I knew my grandfather, my, my mother's father and, um, my great aunt on my mom's side. But short of that, we really didn't have a lot of contact. So we were a small but tight knit family. And, uh, I, I think, especially I've noticed in this modern society, people, people tend to move around a lot and they don't, they, they don't get the chance to kind of build those close connections with people. So you wind up feeling a little listless. You might, you know, spend a lot of time in, in on the internet, for example, trying to build connections with people that you don't meet, which can be helpful, but admittedly it's not the same thing as really having a deep understanding of where you come from, why you are the way you are. Um, I've always had a keen interest in history, but again, not having a in-depth knowledge of where that comes from. I think we knew my great, great grandfather was in the 62nd North Carolina Confederate army in the civil war. But um, yeah, we, I really just had hesitated to ever look because I, I, I didn't really know what I would find. But back at around 2012, I started looking mostly for my father because he he grew up in uh, he grew up in Appalachia, but he didn't have a um, he didn't have a very he grew up in poverty and didn't have a very in depth knowledge either. And what I found really shocked me, but I will say it shocked me in a good way. Um, just instead of feeling a little bit untethered from the world, which I think is what the post-war culture and economy leaves people uh, feeling often, whether they think about it or not, I discovered that my ans- my ancestors came to this country between 1608 and the last person arrived in 1767. So this was different than, you know, when, when I was in school, everyone talked about Ellis Island. And not take anything away from people who had family who arrived in that, during 
the period of migration in the 19th and 20th century. But no one ever talked to us in school or anything else about who we were. And this goes for people, whether they're white or black. But this, I think, is a very, um, this is something that you probably find a lot in the South. And you may find it a little bit more out in the Midwest and West, depending on your family circumstances. But having found that and, and being able to go and visit some of these places, uh, I've been to Jamestown where my, uh, I had several ancestors who arrived there between 1608 and the early, and the early 1620s, uh, Surrey County, Virginia. Uh, uh, right now I'm living in Western North Carolina and pretty much on a weekly basis, I can just about go and find places where my family lived and not just for short periods of time. I'm talking about for generations. And these are things that shaped who they were, uh, their hardships, um, you know, their relationships, probably all the way down to their biology in terms of like what, you know, were they malnourished? Were they able to eat? What kind of food did they eat? These things really shape the kind of people that, uh, you know, for example, Southerners are or people that live in New England or people that live in the Midwest or whether someone just arrived in America just a couple of years ago. But we're so disconnected from these things. And I think that's part and partial because of how the, you know, our modern economy, our modern consumer economy, everyone getting, having, uh, being encouraged to go around and uh, move around for jobs, which is the reality of the world that we live in, but we don't feel tethered to what came before us. And I think in my mind, if you don't know what came before you, you can't realistically prepare or consider for your posterity. You're constantly living in the present. I think that's a really good point. And I've been looking for an article. I saw a, a friend of ours, um, Rebecca Dissonant Mama, posted. And I, I, I said, oh, I need to read this. And then something else happened, and I didn't. But it, it, it's the, the article's suggestion was that, from the headline, you really need a very uh, – a um, uh, the Austrian econ economists talk about <laughs> time preference, high time preference, and low time preference. You need a low time preference, years, generations to consider what your family situation is. And and there's more to it than that. And I, I, I can't find the article. I'm so disappointed. But anyway, the point remains that, yes, then, and I'm actually going to come around to something else I think you wrote and somebody uh, about the impact of things like World War II and, and, and changing times. Uh, and uh, I want to, I'm going to bring up a polarizing point, but I'm trying to talk about community in a non-polarizing way because there's a lot to get out of it. But community, at least in today's environments, especially with an election as of this recording in just a few days, community can be a really powerful buzzword. And we were made aware of this in the last administration with a guy who wrote a book. The guy's name is Saul Alinsky. And this whole idea of being a community organizer, uh, maybe by some that becomes the phrase rabble rouser. Now, that's another show, but it does tie into what I want to get into a little bit. And there was an article on infed.org called What is Community? 
and they identify three aspects of community. And I think they're right. I don't think it limits to that, but they cite place, interest or activity, and communion. Now, some people ears are going to go, wait, wait, wait a minute. So yes, we do mean actually the communion of Catholics on a Sunday, but in a weaker sense, I don't want to use the word patriotism because that brings its own baggage, but it is kind of a, uh, it kind of mixes place and interest in the sort of pride of place. So mm -hmm. since you have two countries worth of experience, and I suppose technically we could say three since you're in the South, what, uh, well, it's true. <laughs> what can we say is the same or different in, say, Scotland in the sense of community to Georgia or North Carolina or Louisiana? I could actually say kind of living or growing up in the Atlanta area, a place that has seen a lot of change since I, you know, in the period of time that I grew up there. Uh, and then going to New Orleans, which uh, has its negative sides. But the one thing about New Orleans is people are very, they very much identify as being from Louisiana or being from New Orleans. Uh, there's a certain... I think given all the hardships that New Orleans has faced, if people didn't have that pride of place, then the city would cease to exist. The simple fact of, you know, the pride and being from that city and, and pride in the local culture and the local business is what has kept New Orleans a vibrant place, uh, especially, you know, post-Katrina. And I could say the same thing for Scotland. And in I kind of, in a way, they're different, but there's a lot of similarities between New Orleans and Scotland, and that probably also includes rural New England. Uh, it's very family-focused. It's very focused. People are very focused on caring for your neighbors. Oftentimes, people know each other for decades, multi-generational households even. Um, so it's not necessarily the kind of environment where you're constantly looking to start over, whether that be on a personal level, a career level, or even a built environment level, things stay constant for very long periods of time. And I think that that kind of tends to create an environment of stability. Now, does that create an environment of economic prosperity? Not necessarily, but you can't have it all. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, there's an interesting observation about New Orleans compared to probably any other American city, and that is, I think this isn't a factual claim, but it's my opinion, that is probably the most European city in, in America. And it has, and you're right, it, it really is, even to strangers going for Mardi Gras, woo, you know, well, that's a bad time to go because it's insane. <clears throat> but pick a time when there aren't Massive, there's always tourists, but not massive tourists. And go to, uh, I'm going to get my place. I think I got a preservation hall or go, go to the old Faulkner house and look at, look, go into that place and smell the smells, the smell of the books. Uh, look at the churches, look at the architecture. The, there's so much in every city, but we're talking about New Orleans. There's a tremendous amount of, reverence for the stuff that's there, not in a bad way. And, mm -hmm. and, and there's a pride 
of of being a new a, like a new, a new Orleanian. I don't even know what the word is, but yeah, you're there's right. You're using the correct word. There's. You know, you you can get that in some in some neighborhoods. You can get that in New York, but there's so much transience there. Um, you know, it's just I I don't. It's, just, it's a fun place to visit, and there really is this this connection to to the past through through food and through music and through culture, and and, and that's that's a fun experience to have. It's it. It is, uh, and you're right, people are, it's not just even New Orleans, but people are very proud of being from their neighborhood. I mean, I lived uptown, and if you're an uptown person, you don't go to mid-city, and mid-city people have their own way of doing things, and the, you got the Irish Channel, you got Treme, the Fogberg Marigny, the Quarter, people live out by the lake. Even some of these places have their own accents, so it's it's just that. It's provincial, but it's also diverse in its own way. You know, there was a time, and I've, I've done, done a little bit of reading about the Harlem Renaissance, but New York in general, there was a time when that was kind of the case in New York. It was very provincial, and you just sort of, that's the neighborhoods. There was Chinatown, there was Little Italy, there was just all these neighborhoods, and you just sort of stayed there. You know, if you might go to the other neighborhood, but yeah, probably not. And that's we we have them now. I think there's. I mean, Chinatown now is, but there's like you know, fifty-seven feet or something. It's there more as a romance thing than actually a functioning neighborhood. Um, little, I mean, it's just all changed. I haven't been there in twenty years, but even then, it was not quite the same as. As it used to be, but you know that's <laughs> what is. Well, I, I think there's a little bit. I don't know if you've ever listened to or read uh, any work by Jim Kunstler. Um, he actually put he puts out a podcast. He's an author, but he talks a lot about uh, the quality of place, of culture, and he I believe mentions how Americans will go to Disney World and they'll go to this quaint fake small town or they'll go to Europe and they'll marvel at everything that's there. And it never occurs to them. This is more or less within their own local context, how your ancestors lived, not necessarily around a 10 year old strip mall. That'll be torn down in another 10 years. You know, like people enjoy these things, but almost as a play environment, they don't understand that you, you can have this. But you actually have to, you know, have some investment in your community and be involved in your community in order to try to make these things happen. People are very passive. We're we're taught to be consumers, not citizens. By the way, huh? I was that too heavy? No, no, no. I'm 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 thinking about that. Thinking, wow, I I, I can't immediately find. A refutation to that, and and so and it doesn't mean there isn't one, but um, that's, huh, that's impressive. Why well, I I think that you know, like I said, in the post-war era, we were, I think Americans were kind of trained as you know, my father has conveyed to me, born in 1936, that things most people were poor, they were just poor, but it was okay because everyone was poor, so. We were all kind of in the same boat together. 
And after World War II, and you had the Depression, and people died in the war, Americans were kind of very open to being promised a new level of prosperity. And that prosperity was delivered. Uh, but the prosperity has turned into people seeking meaning in materialism or simply wealth. And there's, again, I, I want to say there's nothing wrong with wanting to have nice things. Nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with, with pursuing your dreams. But I think it's left, it's left, this sounds so meta, it's left the human spirit feeling somewhat empty because we're not connected to one another in the way that we say would have been before the war or a hundred years before that. And I think that's eroded decade after decade after decade. And now we're at this place where, you know, you were talking about identity and you, you get people involved in some of these movements like BLM. And I tend to think a lot of people find an identity. They, they are seeking something out and they find identity in activism or they find an identity in a political movement because they crave some kind of community or camaraderie with people, some sense of purpose in place. I think that, I think that's an accurate statement. And in the absence of a sound place, we'll find, we'll settle for the ersatz, even if the ideology is wrong, the feeling of assimilation, which is not the Borg, although there is that, uh, but the feeling of association and acceptance, that's a powerful force. And and that's, a, I think, part of the human condition, no matter when or where you live, being part of a community, which is part of this conversation, is not just a community of of, of landed North Carolina, Georgia, Scotland, Louisiana, Oregon, Michigan, but of, you know, the, your family, not of blood. That's also part of your community. Uh, that's, that's an, that's a, that's yeah, a, it's an uh, important consideration. I hadn't actually anticipated that and I should have. I was going to say you're correct. Um, I mean, family is part of it, but it's also the family you make in order those those lifelong or long-term connections. So, because not everyone's going to have, you know, you can seek those things out. It's just, is the opportunity there and how you get to that point? Is it productive? Is it is it a positive thing or is it somehow toxic and negative? But then that's somewhat, depending on who you're talking to, that that's more of a subjective versus objective point of view. Right. Well, so we've been talking a little bit about time and you know, speaking about the U.S. because that's where we are. This country has seen a shift in the community of prairie days and you can scoff, but little, you know, Laurel Ingalls, Little House on the Prairie thing, uh, and the church to now we have government being the nanny. Now that's, that <laughs> covers a lot of space there. Uh, you wrote another essay. What price prosperity. I want to read the last few lines. Quote, Southerners must take active steps within their local communities to support local businesses, teach their children to take an active interest in their heritage, and elect officials who will not sell out the past and future generations for the benefit of the present. End quote. That has the wisdom of being right for anyone, anywhere. Now, 
we have an election coming up. The general government is lost. <laughs> you can see all the signs you want. There's nothing there. But as we near this election, what questions should constituents be asking to learn about candidates at their local level? Now, this is a Brian McClanahan thing from Abbeville Institute. Think local, act local. Is that information knowable? How can you impact your local space? I think a lot of it, I think as McClanahan's pointed out, people at the national level, which I guess really should be central level, we focus so much of our attention there. We're very concerned. I mean, voter turnout for this election looks like it might be record setting, at least in terms of the modern era. Um, and we f- want to believe that we're going, going to get our policy preferences honored by the U.S. government. Um, that's not going to happen. They're going to do what they want to do. I think there was even research that showed that only like one third of the time does anyone's desire, if the desires of the majority are even wished for or cared about by members of Congress, the people on the local level, the state, the municipal or the county, however you want to define it, those are the people that literally not only can you vote for, you can run for those offices. You can go meet your local state legislators, your mayor, your town council, um, versus speaking to a caseworker in Washington who's basically going to put your request in the circular file and you'll probably never hear anything back. Um, and it, all, it requires that we have, I mean, not only these things, but you want to have local and state officials who are willing to stand up to the center in order to try to honor your or their constituency's policy preferences and or stand up for their rights, essentially. Because I think what we have, what I think what we have right now is a very feckless local and state governments who want to just pass the buck to the central. And then so you have people looking to the central. So it's as if the state and local don't even exist. Right. They're subsidiaries of the general government. So, I mean, if you ask an, ask an average person, as even someone who is reasonably well attuned to what's happening at the U.S. government level, what's happening at the state or local government, they won't be able to tell you. And even as, I mean, I, I can only tell you a little bit about what's happening at my local level right now. I can tell you a little bit more about my state and that I'm unhappy with them. <laughs> so, <laughs> But this, you know, no one is really in tune with looking at the state and local government. But these people have the greatest impact on your day-to-day life. You know, when we were talking about architecture earlier, do you want, do you want this built? Is, is this something that, you know, this, you have developers moving into an area. Do the local people want something built or how do they want it built? Because you, I know you're a libertarian, but you're going to have, Someone's going to have influence somewhere. So the developer's going to wield a lot of money at the local and state level. It requires people who actually live there to be involved to try to counterbalance out that influence from those outsiders. Well, and that's true. And so you made the comment that these the local people are going to have more effect and impact on, on you, Joe constituent, but the obverse or reverse is true that you can have impact on them too. Because if you don't like what they're doing, you can that's an election you can impact. 
Correct. You don't like your county commissioners? Get them out. And that's something you can actually do. You can campaign or, you know, that, whereas the, at the, even for your state senator or, or your, your, your general government said, you have no chick, come on. Yeah, well, I was going to add, like I when I lived in Louisiana during the, the recession in 20, 2008 or in early 2009, I was laid off from my job. And I, as much as I didn't want to take it, I applied for unemployment. I only took it for two or three months, but I got stuck in this cube that I couldn't get out of. And they kept telling me, you go to the unemployment office, no one would help you. If you, they would tell you to call Baton Rouge, you call Baton Rouge, no one would pick up the phone. And this went on for weeks until I finally had the bright idea, call your own state senator. And guess what? After I called my state senator, the problem was fixed in 24 hours. But if any time that I had a problem and you contact your congressman, odds are you're never going to hear anything back or you'll get a form letter that has nothing to do with the inquiry that you made. And you can't ever meet this person. Not really. And this is another place where I'll throw my, I worked for a member of parliament in the UK. Uh, Every, every, I guess about every month she would go around and you could, as a member of her constituency, set an appointment and sit down with her and have a caseworker sit down and talk about what problem you were facing that may involve something to do with the government. And then we, as her staff, would look into it as to, is this something that we should address? Is this something there's a legal basis to address? But members of the House of Commons have a constituency of 70 to 75,000 people. U.S. congressmen have constituencies of 750,000 people, which is projected to go to 1 million. Yeah, so much for a representative government. And, it, you know, it's, it's amazing to me was when I talk to people about this, they don't get it. They really... You would think this is a problem if you put it in simple terms that people would really grasp onto and think, oh, that makes sense. But they're so tied into what they know, no matter how toxic or destructive it is, they don't want change. That's been the biggest thing that's just floored me in terms of talking to individuals about this. I think... Yes, I agree with you. And I think that there's just a a slew of rabbit holes to go down, which is not going to be for this episode. But one of the, not one of, a chief problem in the way that the general public thinks about their government is the barrage of misinformation, either flat out lies or intended manipulation, or in the case of uh, at least one of the senators from Oregon is endlessly writing on his Facebook posts in our democracy and they just do a head like, come on, really? So why do you have such little respect for your constituents that you keep telling them the wrong thing? It's not a democracy, you twit, but everyone repeats it. And it's just, so, you know, I don't, is it Goebbels or somebody you repeat a lie long enough it becomes the truth. So people think it's a democracy and my vote matters. And, but... <laughs> So the, my example to this particular senator who was against the uh, nomination to the Supreme Court, I said, you want democracy? You're in it. Welcome to the U.S. Senate. You want democracy? It's got 52 to 48. Guess what? That's democracy, bud. You just don't like how it turns out for you. If you're the 52, hey, this is the best thing in the world. Well, John Calhoun spoke about that in the tyranny of the majority. Which is why democracy is problematic. 
Well, it is. And so Hans Hoppe has a book about it. And uh, you brought the name up. And before I, I want you, <laughs> uh, we're going to get into your Southern Heritage in a minute. But I just want you to mention, you. we've talked about your roots and your heritage. And now you've mentioned the name. So go ahead and complete the circle about Calhoun, please. He's not a lineal ancestor, but his his mother was the sister to one of my great, how many ever times, grandparents. And so look, look, looking at that, he was from upstate South Carolina. And I have a that whole kind of corner between northwest Georgia, southwest North Carolina, and upstate South Carolina is pretty much the core of where you find most of my ancestors for the last almost 300 years. I think that's very cool. And even if it's not direct line, that's still, <laughs> it's, it's kind of exciting. It's a lot of fun. Well, it's, it's interesting because, uh, well, you know, speaking to a lot of people who have a similar background to me, not just Calhoun, but I found that they were, we're almost all related somehow. I just spoke with someone yesterday who's been an online friend of mine for a while. And lo and behold, we have a common ancestor. Wow. But it's, it's especially among, amongst Americans who have come out of rural areas or their families did. These people all intermarried with each other. And, and before anyone gets into like a little ha ha inbred joke, it's not so much that it's just as these people knew each other for generations upon generations. So people tended to, you know, intermarry not within the same family necessarily, but uh, so everyone is somewhat related. So, if, you know, Calhoun came out of upstate South Carolina. So it's looking on it now. It's not really a surprise to me. It's just that he is, he, well, he's a polarizing figure, but he's an important figure in American history. So that's kind of fun. Well, I you know I, I think in terms of if I wanted to claim a famous ancestor, I could do far worse than John Caldwell Calhoun. I think you're absolutely right about that. So I want to get into community and a sense of belonging. We sort of touched on that, but before I do that, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Hey, folks, it's time for a fatitude adjustment. Do you plan to fast? This holiday season? Of course not. You probably plan to eat like a king. I know it sounds crazy, and you're going to think I'm off my nut, but lard is a better fat for cooking than those seed oils. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash fatworks, to shop the selection of fats from Fatworks. Fatworks fats are pure animal fats the same kind of fats our grandparents cooked with. Animal fats taste better, are healthier in the body since they don't oxidize, and make excellent pastry dough. <coughs> Think pasties or steak and kidney pie. You can leave the kidneys out. Fatworks has duck, chicken, lamb, beef, and bison fats, as well as lard. Pick up the sampler pack for a stocking stuffer. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash fatworks, to buy proper cooking fats. Now let's get back to the show. In your piece about Southern heritage, you wrote, quote, My family's heritage was known about and cherished for hundreds of years in the period before World War II. 
documented in family Bibles and passed down through memorable family stories. Yet the massive displacement of people through the Great Depression, World War II, and the post-war economic boom caused much of this knowledge to be forgotten or lost during the rise of modernity, end quote. Now, we've sort of touched on this a little bit, but there's, so this seems like a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It's a tragedy on the one hand because there's all of this very valuable family story and narrative that's missing. And war and depression and employment are very powerful forces. And any one of us would make the decision to attend to our immediate needs. And so I mentioned that article by Rebecca about long-term thinking in generations. But if you've got to find the work that feeds the family, I'm sorry, sorry, ancestors, the work's over there. So nobody doesn't understand the decision, but hindsight gives us the ability to wonder was that the right choice? And uh, how, I mean, there's no answer to that, but how, how do you, what's your take on that? My, my take on that really, I, th- I think this also, once again, kind of goes back to the post-war boom because most Americans in one way or another earned their own income uh, for mo- most of the history of this country because most people were farmers in one way or another. Once we became not only passive consumers, we got, a, we were basically placed into a gilded cave. Here is, you're not going to have to worry about starvation. You're, in theory, unless you're absolutely poverty ridden, uh, you're going to be able to, to buy all these things. You're going to have a consistent paycheck, but you're always working for someone else. So you, you don't have control over your life. Um, and when you get trapped in this, um, I guess, kind of Kafka-esque prison, it's almost impossible to see your way out of it. I mean, I've seen it. I work at a university right now, and we train people to be hired by other organizations. We don't talk to people about being small business owners, entrepreneurs, people who can take their own des- their destiny in their own hands. And this is where you get... Uh, you know, if someone's lived on a on a plot of land or nearby for the last 200 years in the East, but then you're looking for a job and the job is in San Francisco, well, you should get to go pick up and move to San Francisco. But, the, you know, again, the, the, I guess the problem being is we don't think about the long-term impacts of that. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But we're, we're, we come at these problems in a very passive way. And when we do that, we lose something that's kind of intangible that you can't measure, but it's lost. I think I remember when they first recorded the first kind of old time music, which I think was actually recorded in Atlanta. And this music spread all over the United States. And it was popular. A lot of people had never heard it before, but people that had come out of Appalachia had bought it with them, but they they said that they missed they missed that sense of community in their local culture. They found themselves in a foreign situation and in a foreign environment where things weren't nothing like what they had before. And 
again, it's you get into the trade off of okay, you've traded your culture and community for money and materialism. I mean, is that a worthwhile trade off? It's these are discussions that probably go much deeper than even what I can speak to, but we don't have these conversations now. It's like this unspoken thing that you just, oh, well, you don't have a culture. That's no big deal. You don't have a, you don't have an extended family around. No big deal. Go buy an iPhone. Make yourself happy. Hmm. Consume, buy things. Happiness comes at spending fiat currency. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's fiat currency pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Go buy something. Money is your God. Well, yeah, and that, that too is another show, but there's, so that's kind of funny that your, your quip actually sort of fits into the decision of going where the job is, taking my family there to, I, I, my parents did this when we, I, I'm from Detroit and my dad graduated, he went to school late, but he graduated University of Detroit with his master's degree in social work and the job was in northern Michigan. So it's it was 250 miles. So we went. To this and now to this day, the house where I went <laughs> my second home was my cousin's house. They still own that house. Yeah. This has been a long time. It's been nearly 50 years. They still own that house. All of my cousins on on my dad's side of the family are still in the Metro Detroit area. They never left. And the 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 cousins of my uncle on my mom's side they're still in Metro Detroit, and there's I had an occasion I had to go back to Michigan for my brother's funeral and saw these cousins, and for a few moments while they were chatting about what they're going to do tomorrow and next week and let's all get together for. Uh, you know, it wasn't the Red Wings were playing, but maybe it was a Tigers game or some something. I had a couple of moments of, boy, I really missed this. Now, I made the, we left when I was a kid and I had no choice in the matter. Um, but that sort of set the wheels rolling for the rest of our lives. I've moved all over the place. I've been several places in Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, uh, New York. Oregon. Um, so my sense of community is shot. I mean, I still think about my town from high school, but there, this moving for the money thing, because it's a job, because you have to raise a family, that seems like easy math at the moment. Thinking about what you're, you know, what, what price is that? That's hard to know because now you, you can't see in the future and you can't. I can't worry about feeding my kids for three years from now. I got next week to worry about. So it's. I, I we think about this now. At least I'm thinking about it now as a fairly modern problem. I suppose this is probably a forever in time problem. It is, but like I said, I don't think enough of us ask the. We don't ever necessarily ask the question. It's. It's never. It's not something that Americans generally think about. I, I came across someone asking earlier about the differences between the UK and the US. And someone from the UK who had lived in the US said, I find it awfully strange that neighbors don't seem to care about one another in the US. Now that's not completely true, but it's it's become more and more true because people don't know their neighbors. They didn't grow up around them. 
everybody seems to kind of live in this transitory environment, especially when you get around big cities. It's certainly true in Atlanta. If I go up to people in Atlanta, they talk to me as if they'll say, oh, you sound like you're some redneck hick. And I'm like, no, no, this is an Atlanta accent. The rest of you people moved here from somewhere else. (laughs) But, you know, I can't ever find everyone's from somewhere else and they don't necessarily know each other on a deep level. And for example, when I was in Scotland, I would go to these small towns because I worked for the conservative party. And you would see, you would think, how are these people making a living? I'm still to this day, not sure, but they look like they had good lives in these very small towns along the Scottish English border. Um, So there's, there's, I think that we ought to at least have these conversations Uh, think about long-term roots. I at least, I don't feel like I have a hometown myself because we moved around, but we moved around at least within the same region. So I'm at least within maybe two or three hours at most of most of where my family has lived. So I'm more of, I think of myself maybe as a Georgian, maybe as a Southerner, but I don't, I don't have a hometown. I found myself when I was in New Orleans, very jealous of people who, you know, would square off and say, this is the house I grew up in. Uh, this is my neighborhood. I'm from Uptown Mid City, you know, et cetera. And I will defend it till the day I die. There's there's a little there's a little bit if you never had that, then you can be a little bit envious of that. Even if you have, you can be envious of it. I guess that's probably quite true as well. Because I think probably with that, in my case, I, I have a higher sense of what I'm missing. Well, I think it really took me i mean the irony of course being is i've moved around so much in the last 13 years because at 2007 is when i moved away from georgia but it has given me perspective on what what it means to be from a place uh and what it means to see people who are very rooted in their place and at least have some some idea of being grounded. Like I, like I think we said earlier, there's there's multiple levels. It can be cultural, it can be family, it can be sense of place. But I think that we as Americans tend to get uprooted from all three things. We tend to think that there's one American culture, there's one American government. Uh, you know, we're all Americans. And therefore, we're all the same, which, of course, we're not. Um, So, you know, I just, we're not even having the conversation. In the very least, if I'm hoping anything comes out of this pandemic, that maybe people are learning that they can live, uh, live and work remotely from their offices, that maybe people will think, maybe I don't have to move to New York. Maybe I don't have to spend $2,500 a month on a matchbox size apartment where I don't know anybody and won't ever know anybody. And everyone looks like they're miserable because no one's from here. Right. So part of this double-edged sword I mentioned a minute ago is so the, the, the family decides for reasonable reasons to move away and abandon the community. So some, someone else comes in who brings in this other idea, idea of community. And eventually we have this Atlanta problem, but <laughs> I'm the native and you're the foreigners here. Uh, in a way, then, the communities sort of surrender their power because they don't have that collective of identity. And I don't, I know that someone's going to hear the word collective, oh my God, Marxism. No, shut up. Um, but maybe there's something to that, that 
these the communities now not having any of their own sovereignty, which I know is a person thing, but this 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 um, this single identity, they surrender that to the state. Uh, we've already discussed the state is perfectly willing to just kick the can up to the general government. And since we're being sort of topical, <laughs> the general government is more than happy to kick that can to the U.S. Supreme Court and let them do something with it. So no one has any responsibility anymore. It's just let the next guy decide. And that's a whole other problem. I also I also tend, tend to think that some of this has been done on purpose for the purpose purposes of trying to homogenize the United States and trying to create this monoculture based on consumerism, which is, where, which is where you get the idea, you know, you can, if I drive, when I first drove through North Carolina, I was driving through Charlotte and I saw, I think it was a Bed Bath & Beyond, a Michaels, and maybe a Best Buy. And I was like, am I looking at the same strip mall that I've been looking at in Atlanta for the last 10 years? Like, everything is the same. The houses look the same. Like, I'm not seeing anything that looks unique to this community. It's all just been wiped away. So, you know, I used to say the reason that people were so loyal to New Orleans after Katrina is because it was such a special place. If Atlanta were completely wiped off the map, everyone would get up and move to Dallas. It's basically the same place. The land might be a little different, but it, it looks more or less the same. So there's, hmm. there's no real loyalty. You know, if something terrible happened in one of our modern Sunbelt cities, people would just get up and just leave. They wouldn't They wouldn't shed a tear. They would just, fine, I'll move to Charlotte. I'll move to Dallas. I don't care. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. And that... So your your observation brings out the <laughs> over conspiracy theory. I love it. Let's, but you know, I was reading. I'm not even sure what it was, but something about how you know if, if there's something there is. I don't. I can't even get into this because I'm not sure what it said. But there was something about conspiracy theories probably being more true than not. Um, and there, it's difficult to envision what entity would be so interested in doing that, but. I can't say that there isn't one, but that's good. I, want to... I would probably say it's just, it's just the natural course of these multinational corporations. And I'm, again, I'm not, I just think that this just serves the needs of replacing community with materialism, replacing faith with materialism. You know, if you, if you're unhappy, go buy something. Uh, what you own is what you are. You know, what we all listen to the same music. It's, they're put, they've been slowly sliding this in, and I think it's reached its. I hope maybe it's reached its zenith. I it's hard to see how it could get much worse than it is now. Oh man, never attempt worse. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It used to be 50, 100, even back in the 80s when I was a child, you could visit another part of the United States and it would be a fundamentally different place. There's still some differences, but there are a lot fewer than they used to be. And then as, as someone who lived in the UK, the influence of this mass media, multinational American corporation, it just goes everywhere, especially within the English speaking world. It's insidious. Well, there might be something to that. And so we'll have to, 
I, I know you're working. I don't know what your PhD is on. We'll get to that in a few minutes, but <laughs> maybe maybe that's another show. Uh, I do want to bring this down to the family Southern style. Uh, not ex- and, and family Southern style isn't exclusive to the South. We've already mentioned that. But I think they might demonstrate that the best. Before we do that, let's listen to Jake tell us about his podcast, Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Uh, let's talk about multi-generational families. Now, you've mentioned yours, and that's impressive. Alan Mendenhall has an article up on Mises.org titled Hayek's Case for Decentralized Communities. Now, I will link to that article on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 113. The second half of his essay is, in part, his experience at the elbow or apron strings of his grandparents. The line that stood out to me is this one, quote, felt experience defines who we are and shapes how we behave, end quote. That is community and as pure a sense as I can see, starting in the smallest way it can happen, which is the family. So what has to happen to make those experiences valuable? Yeah, we've, we've mentioned materialism, and I love your phrase. You are, I don't know what you said, you are what you buy. Mm-hmm. I realize my question assumes maybe too much that these experiences aren't alone in it, but what can we, what can we take away from this? I think if you, like you were talking about your extended family in Michigan, um, I think when you're surrounded by, and once again, this, it could be family or it could be kind of, again, I tend to think of community as, an ex- as a potential extension of the family. Um, so family by blood and choice. Correct. Uh, the, the people that, you know, if, if you feel like people have your back, I guess, you have a support network. And it's not a support network that is easily dis- dissolved. And you pick up not only their people's man- manner of speech, as we were talking about the Southern accent, or their mannerisms. I mean, like, for example, my mother browbeat into my head growing up. You say yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, to everybody. I mean, that is that is something you better say. And I, I had a manager once from Michigan, and she said, please don't say ma'am when you speak to me. And without thinking about it, I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and she looked at me like she was going to kill me. But, uh, you know, these things make us who we are. I don't think that human beings are necessarily a blank slate when we're born. But our experiences build us into and our value systems come from those people. And it's fine for different parts of the world or different parts of the country to have slightly different cultures and value systems that create different kinds of people because everything that we are, I think I said before, we tend to look at the world within the present. We don't, we just think maybe history or the past, that's that's the stuff of dead people. But we don't exist in a vacuum. Everything that our language, our manners, our traditions, our culture came from someone who 
built upon them from yesterday. And that person built upon them from yesterday. And everything that we are, we're going to pass down to the next generation. I tend to think of time as like a hallway. And we only see what's in front of us because the light's on overhead. But there's a behind you and there's something in front of you. So you probably ought to kind of think about this more in a three-dimensional sort of way than instead of just thinking about it in a, you know, what I can see right now. That's a pretty apt analogy. I like that. Or is it a metaphor? I always get those confused. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I'm not really sure. I had not sure I've even thought about it deep enough. I just thought it was a, I try to be as, I try to be as plain spoken as possible because I want people to be enthusiastic about this because this affects every single person. You don't have to really obsess over it, but we need to be the best people that we can be. And I think part of that is just realizing that our community, family, friends, neighborhood, the culture that we come from, our history is all part of that. It all makes us who we are. And every person should have some sense of pride in that because I think it also builds up, um, put more value in that than put into materialism. Your iPhone one day is going to be in the garbage. You won't even remember it. But these things are intangible. These are things that people can't take from you ever. You will have them from the moment you were born your experiences through them until the day you die. And what, however, whatever you pick up, you will pass on to other people that you either, your own children or people you come into contact with. Uh, it, it might be a little bit of a weird movie, but I think this is kind of explored in the Wachowskis movie, Cloud Atlas. I'm not familiar with that movie. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's, it's a little bit, it's a little artsy, but I think it basically takes place in a, multi-generations different sections of time but it kind of connects these periods in a way that says you know your actions today impact things that you may never see and so i tend to look at culture and tradition and family and community much in the same way hmm. i just looked it up it's it says this tom hanks i don't know how i missed the tom hanks movie <laughs> like i said it's a little I think it's a little artsy and it's a little long, but it's not like something you would sit down when you're looking for an easy popcorn flick to watch. But I think it's, it's <laughs> totally worth a watch. Okay. Well, uh, maybe one day we will. I would not that we, I, because this is, uh, I, do, I do sometimes spend uh, evenings with uh, the big kiddo. We watch some TV show. Right now we're watching House. So it's it's right on the edge of things that are probably acceptable. But well, I will say I was never I never watched House when it was out. But House is one of those things, much like Law and Order or the movie Goodfellas, that no matter how many times you see it, you're like, eh, House is on. Let's just leave it on this channel. Yeah, it's just it's well. For us, there's, 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 there's a good. It's a pretty decent study in in character, and and consistency. And so, you know, house is house is house. You get what you get. It's never a surprise. It's like, well, of course I lied to you. Hello, it's me. Um, That's a pretty. But also, there from a fiction standpoint, there's you you can learn about foreshadowing. You can you sort of get the whole idea of tropes. So there's so there's lots of things for an hour of daddy daughter time that we can watch the show, but also have a chance to you know 
also learn things that you're not going to get in school. Just have a conversation about stuff. Sometimes she'll ask questions about something going on in the show or a character's got this issue or whatever. Who knows what comes up, but it's a really, I enjoy the time together because it's, it's a fun hour to be with my daughter and, and just sort of pick her brain and see where she's, see where she is in the world. And, well, it's a, so it's a good way to help shape her without shaping her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think too, you know, interestingly enough, I, and I'm, I guess I'm a casual Star Trek fan. Like I watched an episode of Star Trek Discovery yesterday. And, and when you were talking about house, I was thinking about, you know, what little community people tend to have today, they, they'll get it in the office. And so I was thinking about Star Trek Discovery, and there was a really pivotal moment where everyone was like, yay, we're still here, we're still alive, we're basically a big family. And I think that's, and I saw people were online, they were like, yeah, this episode made me feel really good. And again, is it, does it make you feel good because it just was a good episode, or is this because you have other things lack? Like maybe you don't have a community. I mean, we've been going through a very long period of this pandemic at this point, so you have people feeling even more isolated than they were, say, a year ago. I mean, human beings are, are social creatures. We do like our alone time, but we also tend to like to be around other people who like to be around us and that may have something in common. So that that should, there's some value in that. And we ought to, yes. we ought to recognize that we're not, I mean, I tend to be a little bit of an introverted person, but I'm not so introverted that I want to spend every waking minute of my life by myself. <laughs> no, the, the, the observation is correct. And my, my wife is, I mean, it, it's kind of the family joke that I will, I can make, I've, nobody's a stranger. It's just a friend I haven't met. I can say anything to anybody. I can strike up a conversation with anybody I want to because I can find something to talk about. Now, we may not talk for 15 minutes, but I can put a smile on that person's face in seven seconds. My my kids are like, I'm not talking to anybody. What are you talking about? But that's probably because they're young. But my wife prefers more of her tight inner group of people. But it's... I, but your point is valid that even if you prefer a tight inner group of people, you still prefer people. Sure. And uh, I will say from personal experience, I have a bad tendency to talk about history, politics, and culture with people, which really doesn't make for easy, casual conversation. <laughs> no, but, well, true enough. And so, but but I, I know this isn't going to be a long drawn engagement. I know this is going to be, I'm saying hello to you. We're in line at the grocery store. And if I ever see you again, it's going to be at the grocery store. I'll never see you in your work and you won't ever see me in mine, but we'll be here. So I, I can, it's, it's kind of being a bit of a thespian. So you can put on a role. You can be any character you want because nobody in the store knows you're not that person. That's, that's true. And I, I tend to think, you know, it's funny. I remember. You had those kind of connections with people. And I, I remember a woman I used to see at the, a New Orleans uh, a gas station on Chapatula Street. We didn't really know each other, but, you know, she would always ask me how I was. And I happen to remember one day that she was telling me that her daughter bought some food home from school. And she said it was so strange, but I really liked it. And I said, well, what was it? She said it was hummus. 
And I had no idea why that stuck at, sticks in my mind. I think it was just that maybe she opened up just enough to, in, in, in the moment that we, I basically presented her with a debit card to pay for gasoline that she happened to communicate that to me. And this was probably, again, 13, 14 years ago. But something about those few seconds of genuine human interaction created a little teeny bit of a bond that you still remember. And I, well, I think it was kind of, it, I think to me it was touching enough to where if she had ever, if I saw her a couple of weeks later and she needed something, I would do my best to help her. It was, it, it was a real moment in an otherwise sometimes cold world. Those are, those are nice when they happen. And, you know, it's, I have those happen. And sometimes if nothing else, just it's, it's, I think it, this is an in, intangible thing. But I think there's a value in recognizing that that moment happened. And I don't know why. I don't know what I'm going to get out of it. And to think I'm going to get something out of it is, diminishes, demeans the moment. There's something, this is going to sound really Eastern. There's something really pure about just that honesty at that second. I think it might be because we, we get so little honesty in our day-to-day -day existence. Because it's 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 it tends to be a little bit cold. I mean, I I know a lot of good people, but I've also met a lot of um, I've been to a lot of political fundraisers or help set up fundraisers, and you're dealing with people that want to use you, and if they can't use you, they'll literally drop you blatantly. I mean, it's difficult in a lot of ways to make have meaningful moments with new people or strangers. And again, we don't always have that big, that big extended support network like people did a hundred years ago or more. So I guess when it happens, it, it, it tends to stick out to you a little bit like, Oh, that's a real human being. <laughs> Excellent. And no one, no one wanted anything out of me. You know, they were just conveying something that was somewhat personal to them. The unsolicited moment of just pure human engagement is a very fascinating thing to have, and it really is it's it's a powerful moment and it's it's valuable it has it has non transactionable value it is it is uber value what a stupid phrase <laughs> but there's, well, there's there's something more there and that's i think that that's really kind of i'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to say that this really sort of exemplifies what I'm, I think I mean by having a sense of community, not just the giant place of 10,000 people or more where you live, but the people in your house, the people next door. You know, I happen to know my neighbors immediately all around me, and we see each other, we say, I know their names, we talk to them, we pet the dogs, we share baked goods, so we have a little bit of a community with these people. Um, probably the reason I give them fruit is because <laughs> probably the reason I give them big things is they give me fruit. So we have, we have a nice engagement. We have a nice uh, arrangement. I get free food. They get free baked goods. Well, see that that's, I've been moving around for a while, but uh, I can say for my parents, my dad is in his eighties and they had, they were very tight with one of their next door neighbors for a long period of time. They had a little boy. They love to go over there and see, see the little boy. But they moved away because of a job. And so since that time, 
the neighbors next door, there's just been the house I think was sold or turned into a rental. And so no one talks to anybody. And so my parents have lived there for at least 20 years or close to 20 years. And no, no one knows anybody. We all see the same people, but nobody talks to anybody. So, Mm. you know, if, if your house was on fire, would any of your neighbors come out and help you? I mean, that's a really good question. Would they? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Hope so. But, you know, whereas my father would say when he was when he was in Western North Carolina, everyone helped everybody out because everyone needed help. If your neighbor had had a an a problem, you would do your best because you knew at some point you would have a problem. But it it wasn't just transactional it was kind of just unspoken of an unspoken relationship because everybody at some point needs a little assistance i think that's a sense of neighborhood that we sort of remember or or think we remember from you know some several generations ago or when when our great grandparents were here and it becomes it's almost a myth it's almost just this i I remember just a little bit of it it was fading away in the 1980s I saw it in New Orleans, and I've seen it in the UK, but it's very hard to find. You know, I, I living in North Carolina or living in Georgia, it's very it it's more the exception rather than the rule today. Yeah, I think that's true. But no one, no one ever asks. No one ever asks why, 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 why don't we do better? Why don't we just think about these things? Because I. It's a side of these things are a side effect of our economy. But again, we're facing, we're in the middle of this pandemic. Heaven forbid something worse comes along in the next 10 years. We're all going to need community, kind of the family you make, if not the family you have, neighborhood support, culture, identity. These are things that have been around for a well well over several millennia. And just because we threw it all away in the last 70 years doesn't mean that it's not valuable. I'm, I'm, I don't know how to make it, but I'm visualizing some kind of like a, a meme where someone's going through. Um, did you ever see the, oh, what was the movie? I don't know, the, the characters were joy and sadness and anger. Um, I forgot what the name of the movie was, but at one point she's in this all this, this memory dump, all the dead memories. I have this vision of someone looking through this sort of memory dustbin of community and say, "Oh, here it is, this thing that we need that we threw away." Well, it's the same thing again. You when we were ta- I was talking about Jim Kunstler. He made a there's an excellent TED talk of his on uh, YouTube from about 2004 where he talked about the fact that. After the war, we took the traditional idea of town building that's been around for thousands of years and threw it in the garbage. You can't just, we we basically tried to reboot human society after the war, and I don't think it's wholly been successful. I would agree with that assessment. I'm going to look for that, and if I find that, I'm going to put it on the show notes page because that sounds like something that ties right in. All right, I want to move into a sort of a fun little short answer part of the show. And these are simple questions. Um, you can, they can be, some of them are decidedly food related, but the other ones don't have to be, but you're welcome to make them. Of the five flavors, sweet, 
salty, bitter, sour, or umami, which one do you prefer the most? I probably have a major sweet tooth. What's your favorite food? I'll go against what I just said, and I'll go with pizza. What's your least favorite food? Probably at this point, chicken. Unless it's I just grew up on chicken. I we, we grew up eating chicken. I've eaten so much chicken. I feel like I'm going to turn into a chicken. Don't do that. <laughs> what gets you excited? History. What turns you off? People who don't who who make assertions but don't have a rational explanation for why they believe the way they did. So Facebook. Uh, what sound do you love? What sound do I love? Um. I say I, I like music. I listen to a lot of. I've been listening to a lot of classical music. Like turn really low on my phone at night. It helps me relax, not get stressed out in these uncertain times. But I love all. I love all types of music except for maybe pop music. What sound do you hate? Pop music. <laughs> not unexpected. What is your favorite food indulgence? Uh, anything with white chocolate in it. Ooh. Uh, is there a book you can think of that discusses some of the ideas we've been talking about? I know some of your work, and I'm going to put the, you know, there's a whole page at Abbeville Institute with your a whole page. Let's <laughs> say it's not that many articles, but I'm going to put that on the show notes page. Is there something you can think of that people could read to get more out of this? I'm a massive fan of the book Albion Seed by David Hackett Fisher. Yeah, Brian mentions that all the time. I have to, I ran across it years ago after running into the book American Nations by Colin Woodard, which is not as good of a book, but I think it's still worth reading. But it talks about these 11 competing nations within the United States, and we're not a nation. And I, uh, Hackett Fisher, especially as someone who's, I'm very, my family history is very tied into Virginia Tidewater and the Scots Irish of the Appalachian backcountry. And it was very enlightening, especially given my, my parents' backgrounds to see like, oh yes, this completely is my mother and this is completely my father. <laughs> Interesting. Now there's a, a book that Clyde Wilson wrote the introduction for called Southern Independence, Why War? Uh, and that really it's it's going to for anybody who thinks they know southern history it's going to give you a jarring experience because it doesn't conform to anything you think you know uh but a very strong argument about community also but again it's it's i, would I think it's well it's worth reading but if you not you but any any reader that goes in and say oh i know what this is about it's no, it's, it's going to be the sound of the needle across the album because it violates every sense of what you think, you know, from your government school. I, w I would probably add to that too. Uh, so two or three years ago, I came across Sir Roger Scruton, who is a British conservative. Um, he just died earlier this year, but uh, he wrote the first book of his that he, or that I read that he wrote was how to be a conservative. And as someone who kind of grew up in a, without getting too political, I don't describe myself as a Republican. I don't find them particularly conservative. 
and given what Scruton wrote, and then this has got me interested in Russell Kirk, this, this was something I could invest myself in. It's not what you see out of the typical partisan bickering in Washington. It's something that's far deeper, far older, far more attuned to community and culture and treating your fellow man well without, gov- without government coercion. It's getting into also, it sounds like uh, Nozick's work. Haven't run across him. Uh, I will send you at least a link or two. Um, he's, and actually there's a podcast episode I'll send, send to you from somebody else that goes into that, but um, uh, interesting fellow. I, I'm not a scholar on him, so I can't speak too much about him. Other than that, I'm impressed by the things I hear and read, I've read. Yeah, there's so much out there that you almost can't. Oh. You almost can't it's, a, it's almost overwhelming because every time I see a book, I'm like, ooh, I want to read that. Ooh, I want to read yeah, that. Yeah, that was what I was exactly what I was going to say. It was overwhelming. There's, it's just, it's, it's the access to information. Well, the access and the amount of information is stymieing. If only I could get paid for reading, it would be awesome. Well, if I got paid for reading, I would, I would probably be able to just retire. Yeah, it would be good. Retire and read. How can people follow your work? Uh, probably right now, the best way is probably through the Abbeville Institute. I haven't written anything for them in several months. I probably will get back on that. I have been busy prepping for a PhD course that I'm supposed to start January, barring the world ending before then. PhD in what? History. Can you be more specific? Um, what kind of history? It's it's looking at it's a comparative cultural history uh, of the Scots Irish and the Ulster Protestants in what is now Northern Ireland. Well, that sounds interesting. I don't know a thing about it, but a target specific interest now that's appealing. So, well, it's the it's the history of seventeen hundred around the world. Okay, whatever. But that sounds interesting. Well, I, I think. I think the as I made the case to when I applied, the Scots Irish have you know long been derided as hillbillies and rednecks, and they're kind of an other in American culture. I mean, it's the one ethnic group in the U.S. you can pretty much make fun of without you know any problems. And in Britain, people in mainland Britain don't really seem to understand Northern Ireland, and they're they're the Scots Irish cousins, as they're known over there, are the Ulster Scots and they're half of the people who were defending unionism against the Irish Catholic Republicans. And so again, these are two different, these are two groups that people don't really understand, but there's an entire culture behind them and why they behave the way they do and what differences, you know, after the point of separation between, uh, you know, what happened in Ireland and then what happened in the Southern Appalachian culture. So how, what, uh, how, no one knows this, but do you have a time budget for years you plan to spend on this? It is generally a PhD and I, I will be in the UK. Uh, PhD in the UK is three years. There, there was a reason behind that because a PhD in the States is usually going to cost you five, six, maybe seven years and possibly your sanity. I could pick <laughs> three years at my age. Six to seven years, that's a little bit harder pill to swallow. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, and yeah, that's, that's a long time. It took my wife eight. Out. So, 
Well, that's exciting stuff. So, but I'm I'm still going to you know I'm, I'm the research will be somewhat over there, but it could be somewhat over here, and hopefully this pandemic passes and uh, things will, I hope, go back to some sense of norm- normality. I hope. Mm, well. <laughs> We all wish that. I just don't. I, 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 we're back to that conspiracy theory stuff, and uh, who knows? But that's also another show. It's not a show I want to do, actually. So <laughs> I'm, tired of, I'm tired of. I'm tired of hearing. I'm tired of listening to it because, again, people aren't. We're not concentrating mostly on being decent people and understanding who we are. We're just one more thing to throw crap at somebody else we disagree with well that and, and the focus is on focus is not on living focus is on not dying and that's stop it well that my father is 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 uh is still working as a barber at his age and he's he's working with clients from the public but he said i you know i don't want my last years on this planet to be essentially wearing a mask for the rest of my life so he's doing it for now but he's like, this better have, this needs to come to some sort of end. It needs to come soon. Yes. Well, from his worth, for the, from his mouth to God, God's ears. Boy, I can't get that out for nothing. <laughs> it's Friday. Is it? I hadn't paid attention. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I, I, I really appreciate it. This was a fantastic conversation, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Anytime, I was, I'm happy to contribute in, in any way, and hopefully someone will glean something from listening to it. I hope so. Well, that's that's the intent. So thank you very much. Yes, sir. Have a and and have a enjoy your meal and have a fabulous rest of the afternoon or evening wherever you. <laughs> I'm losing track of time. Yeah, it's already, it's already actually get dark here, and I think the time changes this weekend, so it's it's going. To, it is. It's going to be even it darker. Is. Yep, it's that's true. All right. Well, thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. As mentioned, the links to Nicole's articles on the Abbeville Institute, as well as those books she mentioned and the articles I mentioned, will be on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 113. Get your own mise en place ready for Thanksgiving. Start with the recipes on the Thanksgiving slash Christmas tab on the blog page, culinarylibertarian.com. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. So I, I have a note here that says, why the big pause? And that reminds me of a <laughs> third grade joke. I don't know if you, you, do you like third grade jokes? They're very silly. Well, it can't be any worse than a dad joke. Uh, kind of the same, probably. <laughs> Bear, Bear walks into the bar and sits down and says, bartender, I want... Toward a drink. Barton says, hmm, why the big pause? Ha ha ha. I'm not brilliant, but <clears throat> my favorite 
all-time ever joke is Penguin walks into the bar, goes to the bartender and says, Hey, have you seen my dad? Bartender says, I don't know. What's he look like? Yeah, that's all right. That's, that's the right response. <laughs> so this, is definitely a, this is definitely a dad joke. Yes, very much so. But it's, you know, I got I got kids, so I got to keep them clean. And that's, that works. 